Triathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. Well, the 2022 season has closed. Another great year for U.S. Biathlon and for the sport. As is typical after an Olympic cycle, we can expect changes, including a few athlete retirements. Today on Heartbeat, we will catch up with two women who have left an indelible mark during their careers, not just within U.S. Biathlon, but with the global impact they have had on the sport. Both Claire Egan and Susan Dunkley were among a host of World Cup athletes who took a victory lap at home in Colin and Oslo at the finale in March, a fitting tribute to athletes who had contributed so much to biathlon. Claire and Susan grew up as athletes with both finding their niche in biathlon after college. Each leaves the sport with a strong collection of results and memories. But what is most notable about both of them is the personal human impact they have had within the biathlon family globally. Each has been a role model for others, bringing the biathlon family even closer together. Susan Dunkley joins us today from her home in Vermont, where she is now the running director for the Craftsbury Outing Center. Claire Egan comes to us from her home in Lake Placid. It's a fun interview where Claire and Susan share their memories, talk about their futures, and look into the sport of biathlon that has shaped their lives. Now let's join Claire Egan and Susan Dunkley on Heartbeat. And joining us on Heartbeat, Claire Egan and Susan Dunkley. And it is a different kind of spring. You're not looking forward to preparation for the season. How does it feel? I don't know. I, I'm I'm still adjusting, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, for for me, uh, so we raced. Well, I raced uh, for the last time at our um, U.S. Nationals at the end of um, at the end of March, and so it's been a few weeks now. And I'm still actually doing pretty much all the same things that I would in a normal year. I'm dealing with a lot of really boring things, um, you know, just tying up loose ends from the season and going through five months of mail and that that sort of thing. So it doesn't feel so different yet, but I think it's going to feel really different in the beginning of May when I'm not training again. Well, I'm sure that it will. And uh, we want to celebrate your careers and we appreciate you joining us on Heartbeat and giving your fans out there in the biathlon community uh, an update on on uh, what you're up to and, and talking a little bit about your legacy. But before we dive into your careers, I want to go back to the big event that happened this winter, the Olympics in Beijing, a very challenging Olympics just to get to uh, with the challenges that we had with COVID, but a, an Olympics that went off really pretty successfully. And Susan, I'll start with you, just your reflections back on the Olympics. And I suppose in particular, that opening event with the mixed relay, what a what a sensational way to kick it off. Yeah, that was a really fun event. Um, we spent a lot of time in the weeks leading up to the Olympics, I think, feeling a little bit stressed and um, anxious about how things were going to go. I think just getting over there with travel and COVID testing and all that sort of stuff was, there were a lot more hoops to jump through than we are used to. 
Um, but once we hit the ground there, I was really surprised. I think things were extremely well organized. It felt really safe once we were there. Um, the volunteers were super friendly. Um, and we had this incredible start in the, in the mixed relay. I think our wax technicians did an amazing job really finding a venue specific grind. So that's the structure that we put in the bottom of our skis. So we definitely had some of the fastest skis in the field that day. And it took the other teams, I think a few more days to kind of catch up and figure, figure out the right ski, ski piece. Um, but yeah, watching Claire and, and Sean mix, mixing it up at the front of that race was absolutely incredible. You know, at the halfway point at the three quarter point, um, and it was wicked cold, man. It was like the wind was just howling. It was, I don't know, probably below zero temperatures. And when you add the wind shell in, it makes it a lot more extreme. But yeah, we had to deal with some frozen fingers. <laughs> Claire, I know you were there racing it. Those of us back home were sitting by the TV and just listening to Chad make that call. But you really provided some exciting moments for us uh, in that relay. Like Susan said, that was a really exciting race. It's it's the one one race that I can say that I'm really proud of from from the Olympics. And um, like Susan said, our skis were great, and and I also felt really good skiing. In fact, I felt good skiing at all the races at the Olympics. Um, and so that wasn't necessarily ca the case for me the whole winter, but it was really exciting to be in my best shape at the Olympics. Um, and what was so what went well in that race for me is that I also shot really well. Um, and it was not only very, very cold, but very, very windy. Um, and so I, I hit nine out of 10 and because I somehow did that, um, uh, yeah, I was able to move our team up quite a bit, um, because a lot of people were having problems on the range. So I think I moved from 11 to four or 11th to fourth or something like that, which was, um, very fun to do. So yeah, very, an exciting way to kick off the Olympics for sure. Claire, can you expand upon the shooting a little bit? I mean, it was cold, it was windy. How do those things impact your performance in the, in shooting? Well, you definitely, you can't, there's some of it that you can prepare for and there's some of it that you can't. Um, we, you can always practice shooting in the wind, um, which we were able to do somewhat at our pre-Olympics world camp in Antolz, Italy. The range can be windy there. And you can also make sure that your hands are going to be warm enough. And there's a lot of different strategies that go into making that happen. But um, for me, it involved wearing a glove liner and then a warmer pair of gloves on top with a hand warmer in between. Um, and of course those gloves still, they can't be thick. You need to be able to shoot your rifle, but, um, with the hand warmer that really helped and, and just keeping your core temperature warm is also really important because there's no chance your extremities will be warm if your core is cold. So we were wearing a lot of layers. We were experimenting with different combinations of things. Um, but those are the things you, you can control, uh, mostly, but there's things you can't control too, you know, whether you get huge gusts of wind on the range or, you know, that's, that's out of your control. Um, but you can be prepared for that and, and have a plan for how you're going to approach the shooting. Um, if you do have wind like that. And, and I, I think I was in for that race in particular, well prepared for the wind. 
Susan, let's go back to you and talk about the ski preparation. This was a challenging Olympics because teams had never been there before. Your technicians only had a limited amount of access to the venue in the months in advance. Uh, what was it that came together for your technicians to get that right grind and get the right combination of wax on that day? Yeah, that's a great question. So normally we go to the Olympic venue um, the year before for a test event and because of COVID, the test events all got canceled. Um, so nobody had gone to this venue. We were able to get a profile of what the course, what the climbing looked like. Um, I think from the IBU, perhaps about six or eight months before the Olympics. But we and we could look up the weather forecast and see like it's a pretty dry place. So the snow is probably more like this. It's probably some uh, dirt coming in from the desert. So it's probably pretty dirty. So our techs took that information as much as they could and made some educated guesses. And then I think they got like just a couple days, like maybe four or five days over the Christmas break around New Year's to go test stuff out. And um, I think they showed up with a bunch of different uh, grinds. So structure in the base of the ski, they tested them out. We got a grinding machine on site there for the Olympics. Um, and so that when we were at the Olympics, they were able to test things and, and make new patterns and, and try them right away. But it's it's really technical stuff. And I just think our, our wax team put a lot more thought into that than some of the other teams did, which paid off well. Was there sharing of information between biathlon and cross country within Team USA that that maybe helped as well? Yeah, I believe there was. And I believe that um, our grinding machine got used a little bit by the cross country team. Um, and we were trying to share some knowledge on that. Yeah, that's true. And we also, in addition to our th that main trip that Susan talked about um, uh, at Christmas time where some of our wax techs went over. Um, one of our wax techs also went over in the end of November or early December um, and was accredited with the USA Nordic combined team. Um, and so there was some knowledge sharing with Nordic combined as well. And, and also sharing of, of credentials to help get people in. Let's get beyond the competition. I know that you guys were pretty restricted. You really didn't have the ability to get outside of the bubble. But uh, what was the social experience like uh, uh, being there? I mean, Susan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we weren't really allowed outside of the venue, per se. But I, for me, it was one of the most social experiences I've had in a couple of years. And that's because we had this big dining hall. And yes, there were little plexiglass dividers up kind of between each seat. But they were kind of in front of you. You could look over to the person next to you on either side and have a conversation with them. And because everybody in the village was getting tested with PCRs every day, it felt really safe um, after the first four or five days. And I had no fears about sitting down with friends from other teams um, and having a conversation with them over a meal. And that's something I haven't been able to do on the road in two years. And it was so fun. And that was definitely my favorite part of the Olympics. It was just such a wonderful gift to be able to have that in my life again. Claire, how about you? I can definitely second what Susan said. Um, it has been um, challenging for us to be on the road, very isolating. Um, even within our own team, we have often been sort of, uh, you know, divided into roommate pods. And so to be able to actually sit and spend some time socializing with our friends from our own team, as well as from, um, other, you know, athletes from other countries 
was, was great. And athletes from other sports too. I mean, I think that's what makes the Olympics special and different from our, our typical world cup season is that it's, it's athletes from different sports as well as different countries. Um, so, so that was a highlight for me as well. I want to take a look back in your careers now, and we're going to talk about your memorable moments, your successes, the fun that you had on the on the road. But I want to go back to how you each got into the sport. Do you have some similarities? Do you have some dissimilarities? And Claire, why don't you, you know, kick it off and just kind of revisit, you know, the pathway that got you into the sport of biathlon and, and ultimately where it led you? Sure. So I, Susan and I have actually quite a lot of similarities, um, uh, the way I see it in our path. And, and one of those is that we were both runners as well as skiers to start with. So I, um, I did competitive cross country running and track as well as cross country skiing, um, in high school. And, um, then our paths sort of diverged a bit. I did not go to a college where I, could um, be on a Division One ski team. I went to a Division Three school that didn't have a ski team, um, but I started one at Wellesley College, um, and it's one of my things. One of the things I'm most proud of is that that ski team is still really going strong. And last time I checked, there were something like 40 girls in it. So I, I stayed in touch with skiing, but I was more organizing and coaching than uh, than competing at that point. Um, and I did continue competing and running throughout college at the Division Three level. I spent a year at the University of New Hampshire as a grad student after graduating from Wellesley, and I competed in Division I um, running and skiing there. And that was my stepping stone to getting into full-time training um, at the elite professional level for skiing um, with the Craftsbury Green Racing Project. So there's where Susan and I connect again. So I joined the Craftsbury team after... Um, graduating from UNH. That was um, in June of 2011. And I still had no thoughts about biathlon. I was purely focused on cross-country skiing, um, which I did in Craftsbury for two years um, before sort of starting to dabble in biathlon. Craftsbury did not have a full-time biathlon program yet at that time. So the way I got involved was with some part-time coaching from Algis Shalna, who he's a Lithuanian-born Olympic gold medalist in biathlon. He was the U.S. head coach for a while and now works as a sort of uh, like junior development recruiter and coach in Vermont. And although I was definitely not a junior at that point. I was 25 going on 26. Um, he, he took me under his wing and taught me some very, you know, taught me the basics of biathlon. And from, from that point, it was really an easy decision. I thought, wow, I, I like this sport. I'm having a good time. I liked Algus as a coach. And so that was a clear choice to go down, to keep going down that path. So from there, I little by little, uh, got involved with the U S biathlon national team and, made my World Cup debut in 2015. And the rest is history. 
<laughs> and we'll and we'll talk a little bit more about that history in a minute. Uh, Susan, uh, again, there are many similarities between the two of you, but uh, one thing that you know I've always looked at with you is you have the Olympic heritage in your family. Your father, a two-time Olympic cross-country skier, uh, your pathway, uh, you know, as as Claire said, you had some similarities, but at some point, you know, you forked into the sport a little bit differently. Why don't you give us your background and coming out of Dartmouth and getting into biathlon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and like you said, my father was a, a Olympic cross country ski racer, so I grew up with a role model in my life who really made it seem real to me and possible to to pursue sport. Um, I grew up skiing in the fields behind our house in, in Barton, Vermont, and I ran and and skied for all of high school and decided I wanted to ski in college. I had an opportunity to do some running scholarship, like full, full scholarships in various places. But to do that, I would have had to give up skiing and I wasn't quite ready to do that. So I went to Dartmouth where I could continue to ski and run. And we, we had a really fun team there. And I think before college, I would have considered myself more focused on running. And I think college is when I switched over being more focused on skiing. Um, the Dartmouth ski team has incredible history, incredible traditions. And, uh, I just loved going, especially the OD runs out in the mountains were just really, really cool. And then in the winter when we did the carnival circuit, there were just so many fun um, traditions around that and, and all the cool places we got to go and being part of that, that team. I I just felt really proud to be part of that group. Coming out of college, I kind of wanted to keep racing, but I didn't think about it as like a full-time job. I don't think there was a whole lot of that back then. There weren't so many clubs in the country that offered full support for, um, cross country skiing. And so most people I knew who had done it had like gotten a coffee shop job or found some other job to make ends meet. But I had a couple teammates who were a little bit older than me, Sarah Studebaker and Zach Hall at Dartmouth. And they had joined us biathlons development program straight out of college. And I didn't know anything about biathlon. I had never followed it. I had had one teammate in college, uh, Carolyn Bermonte who had gone to the Olympics. And then, um, another teammate showed up my senior year, I believe, Laura Spector, who, and she was trying to do both biathlon and cross country. So they were like these people who are kind of on the, you know, the fringe of the team who weren't coming to all our races and stuff, but they did this sport called biathlon. And, you know, I, I, I knew a little bit about what it was, but I didn't really know that much until I graduated and us biathlon sent me this email, my senior spring. And it's like, do you want to apply for our development program? We can give you room and board at the training center. We can give you coaching. We'll teach you how to shoot. Um, all we ask is for a full-time professional level commitment, you know, come commit to this, focus on it for a year or two, see how it goes. And Sarah and Zach had decided to do that the year before I did. So I, I reached out to them and they were at the training center in Lake Placid. And I was really scared about trying to commit to that sort of thing because in college, I'd always loved balance. I'd liked having other stuff going on in my life. Um, things that gave me meaning. And I couldn't imagine trying to do sport 24 seven and think about sport 24 seven. Um, and talking to Sarah and Zach, they're like, you know, yeah, it's, it is a lot of, of sport, but we think you should try it. And my dad actually gave me one of the best pieces of advice. He's like, you know, Susan, if you don't try this, you're always going to wonder what if, and I knew he was absolutely right. He knows me pretty well. Um, and if I, if I didn't try that opportunity when it came along, I would always watch the Olympics down the road and think, huh, could I have been there? I don't know. He also told me, if you're going to do this, you've got to want to do it because you want to be best in the world. Like you need that inner fire, that inner hunger and that motivation. 
um, to be able to, to do the work that's required. And I think that was a really good point on his part too. It's like, if you're going to commit to this, you know, you got to have that, that drive. So I had to ask myself some hard questions that spring if, if that was right for me or not, but I did. And I moved to Lake Placid and I got hooked. <laughs> Susan, as you reflect back, uh, those were the questions. Uh, are you happy with the answers that you got in your career? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I uh, surprised myself, I think, with where the sport has taken me. I certainly did not expect to do it for more than a couple of years. I mean, at the time, it was 2008, the economy was tanking. So it was a good option for me to try out for a year or two while things were kind of uncertain. I'm like, I'll focus on trying to make Vancouver. And I actually went to Olympic trials and failed to make Vancouver. And that was a tough, really tough thing to work through. Um, and a lot of, I mean, I think most athletes who do Olympic trials don't make the team and they have to deal with that reckoning. Um, but I realized that I was hungry enough and I enjoyed, I enjoyed it enough that I was going to commit to four more years. And I did, and I went to Sochi and then at that point I was doing well enough on the world cup that it just, I could make a living off of it and I was having fun with it and I was getting better each year. So it became more of a career. We'll go back in a minute and look at some of those uh, historical points in your career. But uh, Claire, over to you. As you think back to your career, what are some of those memorable moments, first of all, from an athletic standpoint, that that you're going to really carry with you for the rest of your life? I have a lot of uh, a lot of great memories that this sport has given me, um, and that sport in general has given me, starting from middle school. I think one of the moments that really stands out for me from an athletic standpoint was the first time I made a World Cup flower ceremony, which is um, for the top six athletes in a race. And it was our very first race weekend of the season in the 1819 season. Um, and so this was the season after the Olympics, I qualified for the Pyeongchang Olympics and participated there in 2018. Um, and then I, I was really on the fence about whether to continue or not. And I decided, you know, you know, largely for practical reasons to sort of give myself a year to figure out what was next. Um, but also just, we were getting a new coach. I thought that might be a good fit. And, um, I thought, okay, I did all that work. I made it to the Olympics. I feel like I'm just kind of finally figuring out this sport. I'll do one more year just for fun, kind of a victory tour from making the Olympic team. Um, and then that very first weekend of the, of the competition season, I mean, right away in the first race, I had a huge, um, personal best ski time and I, hadn't shot well, but it was the first time in my Baffalon career that I looked at the results and I could tell looking at the results that if I had shot clean, meaning if I had hit all my targets, I would have won the race. And that was the first race of the season. And then in the, in the sprint, the next day, I only missed one and I got 15th. And then in the pursuit, the third race of the weekend, I moved up from 15th to sixth and you know, hit 19 out of 20 of my targets. And I had the number one course time of the day of, of all the athletes that day. So what a crazy weekend. And I think no one was more surprised than me about that, that performance. And that was just the start of a whole season of uh, really exciting races. Um, and so I think that that surprise and that excitement and that joy and all of the great emotions that I experienced in that, um, that 
sixth place, um, are, that's, a, that's an athletic performance that will definitely stay with me. And that springboarded you into a pretty good season, didn't it? Yeah, it was definitely, it was my best season and, um, it was, yeah, to be, to be racing at that level from the very first race to the very last race was, uh, just an awesome experience. Susan, uh, we're all familiar with your world championship medals. Uh, and, you know, I think oftentimes when you, those of us who are fans, when we ask athletes, uh, what's your, your favorite memory, you know, we're all anticipating that those medal events come up, but are those, when you look back at the highlights of your career, what are the, what are the events that you remember the most? I mean, I certainly remember those as pretty high up events, but there are a couple other key ones that, um, were very meaningful to me at the time and uh, still are when I think back at them. One of them was my first world championships, which was in uh, 2012 in Ruppolding, Germany. And that was my first full year, first year on the World Cup. I had gotten my first World Cup start that December. Um, and I had popped a couple, let's see, I got a couple top like 16ths before the world championships. And then there's the individual race at world championships comes around and I hit 19 out of 20 targets there. And the individual is a race where if you hit all your targets, you you, you, get, you have a chance of being up there in the results sheet, even if you're not one of the fastest shooters in the field, or excuse me, fastest skiers in the field, um, uh, just because of the nature of the race. And I didn't consider myself a good shooter who could put together a good performance like that. But the thing about biathlon is you never know. Like It's so unpredictable. And that day... I was bib number one, which is a scary thing to be like starting with bib number one in a, in a world cup in a world championships. And, um, I was just doing my own thing. And I, I cleaned the first stage. I think I missed one of the second stage and cleaned the third stage. And I remember being on that fourth loop after I cleaned, cleaned the third stage and hearing over the loudspeaker, surprising race leader so far, American Susan Dunkley and my heart jumped into my throat because I did not belong up there. I did not belong up at, at the lead at the world championships. You know, it was not something that I had ever really considered as being something that I was capable of. Um, and I still had one shooting stage left to go at that point. And I had such a shock of adrenaline after hearing that, that all I could think about was putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And I got to the range and I don't remember much about the shooting, but I hit all five targets in that last stage. And so I was getting splits that I was fighting for a medal on that last loop, which was just, wild. And in the end, I ended up placing fifth on the day, but it was still a huge, huge, huge PR and one of the best results that US Biathlon had had at the time. And because I was bib number one and the first one across the finish line, I got to sit in the leader chair for a while, which was really, really fun. But yeah, that's that's definitely a fond memory. That's quite a ways back in the in the past now, but it's is one that will carry with me for a long time. Um, another really favorite memory uh, was the relay and uh, Ostersen World Championships, where we were fighting for uh, a medal, very unexpectedly. Again, uh, Claire was part of this this team, um, and she can talk a little bit about it too. But it was, I think, the team events and the team experience is just so much more special in some ways than the individual days are. And when you realize that you have a group of teammates who are all really pulling through and um, sharing this this special moment for you, it's it's really memorable and exciting. 
Yeah, Claire, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that, too. I mean, we've talked about a number of different relays, including the mixed relay at the Olympics. Uh, This is really quite a family. And when you're in those team events, it really is a special, special thing for athletes, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And and I agree with Susan that um, that 2019 Ostersund Sweden World Championships women's relay comes to mind for me as well. Um, you know, the the thing about a relay is that it's only good when everybody has a good day, and it's it's wonderful to celebrate when you've had a good day. But there's many times when you have a, a relay performance where maybe I mean our best relay performance that we ever did fifth place in Antolts uh, this year, I didn't have a good race. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, on days like that, it feels, it's kind of bittersweet. You're celebrating, but I'm at the same time, I'm thinking, man, we could have been third if I had even had like a normal shooting performance. Um, but when, but at that race in, in Ostersund, everyone really performed well. Um, and that's, it's fun to watch. Susan was such a reliable relay starter. Um, over the course of our careers, we shared many, many relays and Susan was usually our first leg. And I just, I mean, I cannot even think of a time when Susan didn't perform well in, in that role. It was, she was just incredibly reliable and it's so hard to be reliable in biathlon because anything can happen, but it's like, okay, Susan's going to shoot well. She's going to ski well. And I'm going to get tagged maybe in first, you know, definitely within 30 to second, 30 to 45 seconds of the lead. And sure enough, that happened almost every single time. And I think at worlds there, she tagged me in first or second. And, um, I think maybe second and it was, it's the only time in my career that I tagged in first. And I think it was, uh, one of, if not the best performance of my career. So I'm glad Susan brought that up. I shot 10 out of 10 and tagged in first. Uh, that was great. And then as I'm, you know, catching my breath, I got interviewed by German TV live, which of course, if you're familiar at all with biathlon, you know that German live TV biathlon is a very big deal. Everyone in the country is watching. And they were asking me um, in German, actually, and I was just like praying that I understood the question correctly. You know, they're asking me, what's going on? How's it going? And I'm looking at the scoreboard going, oh, Joanne is, um, yeah, we're still leading the race. <laughs> so yeah, that was great. And um, I I think we ended up ninth that day, if I'm not mistaken. And um, just to have a top 10 for the US women at a world championships at that point was a really um, huge accomplishment. And we actually had a lot of teams congratulating us because they knew that that was uh, a big accomplishment for for us. And and since then, we've been top 10 so many times that I've lost count. I want to continue to explore the family aspect of biathlon. It's one of the things that's really struck me in following the sport. And Susan, I, w- I want to ask you about the uh, the silver bib. I thought that was just one of the most amazing concepts that uh, you were involved in coming up with. Uh, tell our listeners about the silver bib on the uh, World Cup. Yeah. So this actually came out of some conversations that Claire and I had together. Claire's on the executive board um, with IBU as an athlete rep. And at one of their meetings one time, they were talking about bringing in the U25 bib, which is the blue bib. And that's for the young, the top young athlete. And I think Claire at the meeting had jokingly said, well, what about the older athletes? We need like a gray bib. 
And so she was telling me about this meeting after, after the fact. And I was like, yeah, you're totally right. We need a gray bib. Um, and we were joking about it and we let a few other athletes in on our, on our thought. And I think, uh, Anais Beskond thought it was hilarious. Selena Gasparin thought it was hilarious. Um, and so one year at Christmas time, like, uh, I'm like, ah, we should actually make this, this bib. And like, what, what should this bib look like? And I don't know. One of us came up with the idea. Yeah. It should be like knitted, like grandma sweater style, you know, like, <laughs> and so Christmas break a couple of years ago, I got out my knitting needles, which I hadn't used in a few years. I'm not, I'm not a huge knitter. I know how to knit and I enjoy it now and then, but I'm not like crazy about it, but I dusted off my skills and figured out how to, how to do it again. And I created a, a, a silver bib and it brought it to the next races. And I made one for the men and one for the women and calculated all the points to figure out which athlete was uh, leading the standings. And we decided to make the cutoff age 33 and above, just because we figured that kind of gives you about, I don't know, 10, 10 to 15 athletes over the whole course of the season who might might compete in that age category. Um, and yeah, I passed it off to Anais Bascon at the time. And I think Yakov Falk started the season at that point in the lead on the men's side. Um, and yeah, they got really into it. Anais would bring it around. If she was close to the lead and somebody else was coming up behind her, she'd go to the race with a bib just in case she had to pass it off to somebody else. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the season, we did a little ceremony for, for the winners and recognized them on the podium along with like the globe overall people, you know, and the IBU let us have a five minutes of time to do a little ceremony. So that was cool. It, it's just, to me, it's such a fun story. It's something else for people to aspire to and maybe stay in the sport a little bit longer. Uh, Claire, in 2018, your peers on the World Cup uh, voted you this, the chair of the Athletes Commission for the IBU. Uh, I know it probably caught you by surprise at the time, but you guys have done some amazing work. And one of the one of the things that really struck me this year was how the sport is now recognizing retiring athletes at the final World Cup. That was just a great concept uh, in Oslo this year to honor you guys as well as the others who are retiring. Yes, it, I'm really glad that I got to be part of that. Um, so this it, it was an idea that came from my coach, actually. Um, we we're, you know, we're going through the last week of our world cup careers in Oslo and we're looking around realizing that there were quite a few retiring athletes. Um, there were probably 20 among men and women, um, who retired this year. And, and I wasn't too surprised by that, honestly, because over the course of my career since 2015, I've seen so few retirements. Um, so I think this just, there came this natural point where a lot of people were, were retiring. Um, and my coach had an idea that we should all get together and, you know, just maybe ski a lap of the course together. Um, and I, I thought that was a good idea and I embellished a little bit. <laughs> um, I, so I, I, you know, I contacted everybody, um, but I also contacted the stadium, um, and the announcers and the sort of like TV programming and, um, got some champagne. And I think everyone was really happy with it. It was, um, a great way for all of the retiring athletes to get together and share that moment together. So we all got together in the middle of the stadium after our last race and had a toast. Um, and then, 
waved to the crowd and skied a loop together. And, and the fact that we had a crowd was really notable. I think we've had spectators live in stadium for only two or three events um, of the last, you know, since 2020. Um, and that included our last two World Cups. So we were so lucky to have the spectators there. So we skied, we waved to the spectators, you know, they were giving us a standing ovation the whole way. And the announcers were kind of going through it by name. And um, that was, yeah, it was a wonderful moment to share. It was, it was wonderful to feel honored by our spectators and by the organizers of our sport. And I really think it was also important to honor the careers of people who have contributed so much to the sport, but aren't necessarily on the podium all the time. I mean, there was, you know, one Slovenian athlete, um, who had done 400 world cup starts. Um, um, that's a ton of racing. I mean, to put things in perspective, I did, uh, you know, I did 187 world cup starts, which feels like a lot. And that's from 2015 to 2022, um, so 400 world cup starts is really a lot. Um, that was Clement Bauer from Slovenia and there were four or five Japanese athletes who retired this year and, you know, none of them had been on the podium, um, as far as I know, but there they were, you know, having their moment front and center for all of their world cup racing and, and all of that they have brought to the sport. So, um, I, I really do hope that that becomes a, a tradition. We'll make that happen. Um, and I think it was it was win-win for everyone. The athletes enjoyed it. The fans enjoyed it. Uh, I think people watching from home enjoyed it. And, and IBU, um, you know, really appreciates those kind of efforts to bring people from different countries together. Yeah, it w- I think it gave great closure to the athletes. And for those of us as fans, it was just a, a great way to get a, a, a sense of the sport and the family aspect of it. Uh, w- w- I want to update the listeners on what each of your plans are. And in doing so, also explore a little bit about this decision to retire, which is not an easy one, I know. And uh, Susan, I'm going to start with you. How did the decision come about? And what are you going to be doing moving forward now that you're not going to be on the IBU World Cup for the entire season? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the last four years, I've been taking biathlon one year at a time. And so I wasn't, I didn't have in mind, I'm just going to go through 2022 in the Olympic year. It was more like the spring would roll around and like, am I still enjoying what I'm doing? Do I still like, do I still feel like I have something to contribute? Um, what else do I want to do in my life long-term? And am I setting myself up well to be able to do that? And I, I was on the fence, I think all, all four of the last years. And I, I ended up deciding, making the decision to keep going, but, um, it, it wasn't always easy. So I feel like in some ways I've had four years to get closure and to think about this. And, um, going into this past year, my goal was to have a plan in the fall for what to do next before I left for, for Europe. Um, because I think it's really difficult to, to stop and then just not, know what's next. I mean, when I was 50, 50 about whether to keep going or not last year, I felt extremely lost. I just felt like there was this, there was no flora under me at all. Um, when I thought about not having biathlon in my life. And so this year I made a plan and, um, I'm going to work as the director of running at the Craftsbury outdoor center, which is my home ski club. It's where the green racing project is based. Um, I have a wonderful, uh, house and community. I love my neighbors. Um, I love the town here. So my goal was to find a job in Craftsbury, if at all possible, that allowed me to stay here. Um, 
And I was less worried about what the job was and more worried about the location. But I'm really, really excited about the job I have um, being involved at the Outdoor Center and and moving into the running world. And I'm going to get to do some coaching. I'm going to be organizing camps. Uh, we have different themed camps, high school camps, master's camps, stuff like that going on all summer long. So I'm going to be hiring and, or I'm, I, I already am doing some of this, but um, organizing those. I'm going to be doing some community running events, some race directing. Uh, we also have a green racing project running team. So managing that group has been really fun. And I started my role part-time already back in August, September, and I just moved into full-time this past two weeks. So, <laughs> um, but I, I love it so far. And, and I've been helping out also with girls on the run this spring and the Craftsburg Academy track team. Yesterday I learned how to coach javelin and long jump, which I have, I know absolutely nothing about, but javelin. I, yeah. Javelin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on finding some YouTube videos and teaching myself, like spending 10 to 15 minutes each day learning a little bit so that I can teach. <laughs> Love it. You could learn a lot from YouTube videos. Absolutely. <laughs> How to throw a javelin. Uh, Claire, you, you actually dabbled with retirement a few years ago and then made another commitment. But what was your process in coming to this point and in, in, in leaving the sport at, uh, after the, uh, the Olympic year? Um, well, I, I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, I was planning to retire in, um, after the 2018, 19 season. Um, but the paradigm really shifted for me during that season because I did have a, a breakout year performance wise. Um, I also had way more fun and was way happier than I had been doing the sport, um, that year. Um, a big part of that was my coach, Armin Ochenthaler, who has been a, a wonderful coach and a friend to me in these last four years. Um, I also started making money, which I don't want to downplay the importance of, um, when you're barely making ends meet doing a sport, it's, it's, it's difficult, of course, sort of logistically, but it also makes, um, you know, when times are hard, when you feel less motivated, when things really frustrate you, um, it makes it very easy to say, well, I'm doing this as a volunteer. And if it's not fun, why am I doing it? Um, whereas when you are making a living doing something, it's much easier to, um, you know, un to sort of deal with and rationalize times that are difficult or frustrating. It's like, well, yeah, this is my job. So there's going to be things that aren't perfect, but I'm going to keep doing it. Um, so I think all of those things sort of changed in, in 1819. And, um, and so I decided to continue and like Susan, I was also very much, uh, going one year at a time. And I think I might have retired after, um, the 1920 season, if the pandemic had not cut our season early and, um, because that just threw everything into turmoil. I mean, it was like, well, what, what am I going to do? Enter the job market in, you know, April of 2020. And, and I absolutely didn't have any closure. I mean, we had, the season had been cut short. And so I continued one more year. And, and then I think Susan and I both had a really difficult choice. Um, you know, we talked a lot last spring about whether to do this, this final year, together. And I mean, it was, a, it was an independent decision, but we were both definitely both on the fence and it was uh, just in the end, it felt like the right thing to do, to do, do this, do this last year. But I did know the, 
I knew this whole past year, 21, 22, I knew it was going to be my last season. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, I'm so glad that I had all of that closure for a whole year. You know, it was like, okay, this is my last summer training camp. This is my last roller ski race. This is my last time going to Utah in the fall for our uh, training camp at altitude. It's, it's my last world cup in Sweden, you know, you're just going through every step of the way over the winter with that knowledge that it was the last time really, it put me in a place of gratitude for all of those things. Um, and that's a great place to be. I think no matter what you're doing in your life, if you can be in that place where you're feeling gratitude about whatever it is you're doing, um, I mean, it's then you're focusing on that and not anything that might not be going your way. So um, I was so glad I had had that the, that sort of perspective on the whole year. And so that brings me to where I am now, which is retired. <laughs> and um, unlike Susan, I do not have any plans. Um, so I. I'm definitely in the, you know, I do sort of feel like I have no floor under me. Um, and that's a little bit, I don't, I mean, I would, I would probably prefer to have some kind of plan, but I just haven't been able to come up with one. Um, I certainly tried and, but I, for me, I don't have a sort of cornerstone, um, in my life, uh, in terms of like location, the way that Susan does where she had, she owned her great house and loves her community. Um, for me, um, I mean, the one sort of cornerstone I have is my boyfriend, Eric. Um, and we're, we're living together here in Lake Placid, but we don't know where we're going to go next. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. So we will have to figure that out. Um, but on the other hand, I don't feel, um, I don't feel terribly stressed. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky. I feel lucky that I just have some time to, to maybe relax a little bit more and spend some more time with family and friends this summer. And and hopefully by the fall, um, I'll have a more clear picture of what is next. Well, Claire, I'm sure there'll be some listener to this podcast who is a business leader who will be uh, on the phone to you Visit shortly. Visit my to LinkedIn offer... profile by all e- means. Exactly. Just a couple <laughs> more questions for you. You both were a formative part of a great evolution of biathlon in America and really across the world. And I just love to hear your thoughts of how you've seen the sport, how you've seen U.S. biathlon evolve. Susan, why don't you take it first? I think as a whole, the sport has gotten a lot more competitive globally. And especially in the past five years, I look at the ski speed spread um, in the women's field and it's just a lot tighter now than it used to be. You really need to have a perfect or near perfect race to be qualifying for pursuits. Um, and that was not always the case in the past when I started. Um, if you were a pretty fast skier, you could have a bunch of misses, but now there's so many fast skiers that you, you really need to have a good performance. Um, I think the federations have changed a lot and I think the athlete pools have changed a lot. We have a much more engaged athlete base now than we used to. So athletes are advocating for things they care about. Um, partway through my career, we saw what happened in Sochi with the the hole in the wall and doping samples getting passed through it. And that became a breaking story in the New York Times a year later. Um, and athletes across the world were like, what the heck is going on with our sport? Like, this is horrible. And then the more we started digging into it and organizing, the more stories we started hearing about how stuff was happening. And the McLaren report came out 
And it was just really cool to be able to see the athletes caring about this stuff and learning how to organize. Um, and over the last few years, the IBU and Claire can speak to this, the IBU has had some major changes in leadership and cleaned up a lot of corruption that was happening behind the scenes. And now we, we have new people in charge and we have initiatives happening that just feel like they're very much in line with my values. The IBU is putting an emphasis on sustainability. It's putting an emphasis on gender equity. It's putting an emphasis on integrity. Um, and that was not the case, you know, five, six years ago. Um, so I have a lot of hope about the future um, for the international biathlon community. I think uh, within the USBA too, we're also seeing more athlete advocacy in the past couple of years than we used to. And I think that's going to be a really good thing for the sport long, uh, long term. Um, I think before, I don't know, 2010 or so, there weren't a whole lot of athletes that stayed involved when they retired and became coaches, became officials, were volunteers. Um, I think a lot of them would feel really burnt out and maybe just unhappy with the, the sport and the federation when they retired, but that's changed a lot in the past decade. And now you, you see a lot of the retiring athletes wanting to stay involved and finding ways to stay involved. You know, we have Tim and Lowell in pretty high uh, positions in the federation. We have Sarah and Zach, you know, helping, well, Sarah's now in the federation too, but they, they started uh, getting the program at Soldier Hollow going. Um, at one point we have, you know, Danica Frisbee, Mike Gibson, all these people, Brian Halligan, running clubs and, 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 and getting involved in development efforts. So I think that's really cool. And I, that to me, that's one of the, the most important pieces that's, that's changed in, in how things have operated. So um, I'm excited about that. Cool. Claire. I think Susan summarized all of that very well. Um, and I will just add, cause unfortunately Susan was sick and she was not able to come to our season finale us nationals here in Lake Placid. Um, but that was by far, uh, the, the coolest and most well attended us bathlon event, um, that I've attended, you know, at the national level. So it was, it was so great to see. Um, I think there were almost 200 people registered to compete. And I mean, when I saw the start list for our relays on Sunday, there were 67 teams registered, 67 relay teams, um, which is remarkable. And, um, and we had, it was just a fun event. I mean, here we had Andrew Weibrecht, a two-time uh, alpine skiing medalist who lives in Lake Placid, who like came out and did the novice race. He wanted to try biathlon. And, and Katie Ulander, uh, a skeleton, U.S. skeleton team medalist, uh, she was there trying biathlon. And um, so the opportunity for people to try the sport, um, it was appealing. There were so many people there and so many kids and boys and girls. Um, so this the sport, because it, you know, it can be expensive, it requires infrastructure and time and all that stuff. Sometimes we have seen uh, more masters than kids, um, which is great to have a lot of masters, but it doesn't help feed your elite level pipeline. Um, and th at this event, there were a ton of kids. Um, and, and also, like I said, boys and girls, and we've had trouble recruiting girls into the sport in the past, but there, here was this critical mass of girls who were like having a really fun time together and doing the sport we had a big barbecue and award ceremony. I mean, it was just a great event. So, um, and I texted Susan right away, you know, I think you would really have liked to see, I think you would have really liked to see this, um, because 
we sometimes feel like as we're backing out of the sport, um, you know, it's sometimes we look around and we're like, ah, there's, there's so few, you know, elite women. Is it just like fizzling out? Like, you know, you always want to leave, uh, and something, an organization, you want to leave it better than you found it. And being at that, um, us nationals just made me feel very encouraged about the growth of the sport in the U S and, and that it's not going to fizzle out. Like there's all these kids who are excited about doing it. Um, so I think that, um, that was something I was really happy to see in my, in my last competition. Well, Claire and Susan, you for sure are leaving this sport in a great place. Uh, it's It's been fun to watch it the last few years. One last question for each of you, and I want you to just kind of dig deep back into your careers. And Claire, I'll start with you. But it, it, as you look back in your career in biathlon, you think about your legacy. Uh, what's one thing that really is close to your heart that you feel really good about that that you've been able to take from biathlon or actually even more so leave behind? I think uh, for me, what I hope that I'm leaving behind is um, my contributions, actually not on the field of play, but my contributions um, and setting a precedent for what the athletes committee can do and what the chair of the athletes committee can do as a member of the IBU executive board. I think there's there's tons of athletes who have had way more uh, compelling results than I have had. Um, I mean, I hope my my results and my sort of un, uh, tr- non-traditional path into the sport inspires people and reminds them that there's various ways to, to do sport and to get involved. Um, but I think my biggest impact has been not not actually in, in the field of play, but, um, sort of my work outside of, outside of the actual stadium, um, for the greater good of the sport and specifically of the athletes. When I was elected there to the athletes committee, we didn't have an official role. We didn't have an official voice in the IBU, although we were really pushing, like Susan said, we were active and organized and, prior athletes committee members, including Lowell Bailey were a really big part of that. Um, but what we were able to do was actually institutionalize our voice so that we have a vote in the executive board and we vote in the technical committee and we were involved um, in all of the decision making. That's really important. When you when you marginalize athletes, that's when sporting organizations fail. It's just a, a truth. It happens every time. And when you put them at the center of the organization, the organization succeeds. And that's what we've been really pushing for. That's, that's sort of one part of it. And then I think the other part of it that I, I hope has been felt by other athletes is that we've, our committee in the first four years, my first four year term, we, we really tried to be inclusive. We really tried to bring together athletes from every country, even ones where we had some conflict, you know, we had some suspicions and conflict of our, of Russian athletes, of, of athletes who were from places where there had been a lot of doping cases. And we, we really made a push to do things, whether it was, you know, just the silver bib or Valentine's flower sale or things that were for everybody and things that brought people together, like the, for the closure, for all of the athletes at the, on their last world cup for those who are retiring, those kind of things that celebrate the sort of human aspect of the people who are, who are the athletes. 
Um, so I hope that that's been felt. And, um, I think that's, that's what I hope I'm leaving behind, um, more than just, uh, uh, any of my results. Susan, you have brought uh, great excitement with your silver medals and your other performances throughout your career. But as you look at your legacy, what is it that you want to be remembered for in biathlon? Yeah, I think one of the qualities that I am most proud of in regard to my biathlon career is my resilience. And I think it's important that people see those silver medals, but don't see them out, outside of context. If you put them in context, there's a whole season that happens and a whole career that happens that has ups and downs. And if you look just at the ups, you're not seeing, you know, 90% of what's going on. And I had a lot of, I had a lot of challenges in the races too. I could go from 90th place one week to eighth place the next. Um, and I think, especially for young kids, it, there's a lot of pressure uh, in terms of being able to have, do things perfectly, get into a good college, get good grades, all this sort of stuff. And I think it's important to remember that it is okay to fail. And just because you fail and you have a rough day or a rough week or a rough year, doesn't mean that you can't, you know, continue on and carry through and, and still pick your, pick yourself back up and, and keep going and keep believing in yourself. And I think that's, that's one thing I've really tried to, to live in my biathlon career is, is being able to, to deal with the ups and downs and, and, and be, be myself and be true to my values, no matter what external things are happening in, in my, in my life and my day-to-day sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's what I think about. Susan Dunkley, Claire Egan, we have so enjoyed following your careers. We wish you both the best of luck as you move forward into the next chapter of your lives. And thank you for joining us to share your story here on Heartbeat. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Clarence Susan on Heartbeat today. There's no doubt that the sport of biathlon is better because of their presence and their personal leadership has left an indelible mark. And I am sure that both of them will continue to have an engagement with biathlon moving forward. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat as we tell the story of America's biathletes. You can help us by sharing the link to your social media channels and telling your friends to listen to Heartbeat. Remember to subscribe to Heartbeat to get every episode delivered directly to you. And leave a review if you can. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. Heartbeat.